Hey, Will, like I normally do, I just want to take a moment to tell our listeners to make sure they hit us up on social, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, wherever you might see us. Make sure you're sending us something. Also, you can email us directly at AppalachiaMeetsWorld at gmail.com. If you get a moment, shoot us a line, give us some feedback. Yeah, and wherever you listen to the podcast, make sure you subscribe to Appalachia Meets World. It just helps our podcast, but it also helps you know when we're releasing a new episode. I think the sense of community is such a huge strength and something that's carried uh, individuals from Appalachia through any kind of community tragedy or anything challenging is the ability for the community to get behind one another and rally and just support the needs of one another. Appalachia Meets World, a podcast about place and perspective, but always Appalachian. And don't forget, Will, tonight's episode is powered by SOAR. Shaping our Appalachian region. If you're an entrepreneur out there, especially in Eastern Kentucky, check them out. Sure. Appalachian Meets World, we're back. It's Will. Hey, and Neil. What up? Getting a little chilly, colder, turning into fall. Yep, love this time of year, Will. It's when the leaves are changing. I just saw a website, SmokyMountains.com, just released their annual interactive map of fall foliage. Yeah, uh, where does it start happening first at, Will? It says it began seeing a minimal change mid-September, and the colors will continue to evolve until the leaves reach the peak foliage towards the end of october do you get that uh do you get that change where you're at do you get that color color change yeah it's pretty sudden here they change and then they fall off pretty immediately but there is color change here yeah yeah not like driving through the blue ridge can't have it all will so i only got one piece so this week is the follow-up episode it's part two with the appalachian state students and dr Curtin with the doctoral program of clinical psychology. But I wanted to talk about one little piece of news. It's actually a really important piece of news that just happened this week. I'm going to play something for you, and you tell me what you think. Well, I was born to coal miner's daughter On a hill in Butcher Holler We were poor but we had love That's the one thing that daddy made sure of He shoveled coal to make a poor man's dollar Yeah, Will, sad day in Kentucky, Will, a couple days ago. Sad day all over. Miss Loretta Lynn passed away at the age of 90, I think. Was she 90? Yes, she was exactly 90, Will. She was born in 19 and 32. Sad day, however, it's just an amazing story of how she brought Butcher Holler to the world, just like we're bringing this podcast to the world. She brought her voice, her songs, and Butcher Holler to the world and represented well. Yes, what a great, phenomenal representative of our area and all of Appalachia can't say enough great things about 
about Loretta Lynn. I, I just hope that we can do a good job of memorializing her so that my kids understand her impact on uh, country music and the world. Sad day. Go ahead. Life well lived, though. I think, like you said, uh, an excellent representation, but also she just gave uh, opportunity for young people, old people alike to see her, see what she has accomplished, see where she came from, and to know it's possible. You know what I mean? Talk about it all, yeah. all, all the time on here about opportunities, and she made the most of her opportunity. Absolutely, and also spread a lot of hope. A, a, a life well worth celebrating. Yes, definitely. R.I.P. Miss Lynn. Yes, sir. I wanted to just mention from last week, I know we didn't talk about it very much, but we mentioned Dr. Curtin being the uh, professor and the head of the program there at Appalachian State of the students that we discussed. But, you know, we didn't give much of a shout out to Dr. Curtin. We just wanted to give her a shout out this week. And, you know, she's ahead of the program in clinical psychology there at App State. She's an extremely accomplished professional, extremely accomplished psychologist. And I just wanted to mention that, you know, she's been published in multiple publications, multiple journals. She's done tons of research. And I just want to give her a shout out specifically. And even though we thanked her and the students on the episode, we really want to thank her for her work and all that she's done there at Appalachian State, but also all that she's done all throughout the region. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that, Will. Really appreciate her uh, helping us out with this episode also. Yeah, and I did want to mention that the ARC actually gave App State a grant in order for them to start that program. So it just shows the significance, just shows the importance of trying to increase access to services throughout, especially healthcare services, mental health care services throughout the region and how important a role that ARC plays, but also it just goes to show of how they thought this program is important and will be important into the future. Couldn't say it better myself, bro. All right. Well, since we already had part one last week and we're going into part two this week, we'll keep the intro short. You want to just get them on here and restart where we left off last week? Yeah, absolutely. Let's, let's get into it, man. All right. Lots to learn. Uh, social detriments of health, especially that occur in rural areas. But we've spoken in the past uh, in regards to practitioners really understanding the history, the geography, the culture of an area. Shayla, maybe I'll ask you, is it important for practitioners in rural areas to conduct? I think you may refer to it as kind of this place-based care or really understanding the, the setting that you're practicing in. How important is that for practitioners? It's very important. Um, I believe it was Kim who mentioned it earlier, but we need to know the context that our clients are living in, in order to understand whether the stressors they're facing right now are due to things that happened 20 years ago. Maybe there was a natural disaster that affected their family so deeply that they haven't been able to recover from it. Maybe there's intergenerational trauma that's happened in this particular culture that we need to be aware of. And just we need to know what resources are available to refer our clients to, what we can pull on to support them. The social determinants of health are something that we don't historically haven't always paid much attention to, but we are increasingly aware that it is 
usually the first thing that needs to be addressed before we can target any more specific mental health concerns like depression or anxiety. And sometimes that depression and anxiety can clear up if those determinants of health are resolved. Someone also touched on it earlier in regards to not only integrating in, in the community, but really collaborating with other entities. Maybe it be the, the school system, educators within the school system, the churches, or even employers and local chambers of commerce. Because in Appalachia, a lot of the times employment or lack of employment will lead to some type of depression or some type of mental illness. How important is it from your experience, Shayla, just to follow up with you, how important is it for practitioners to collaborate with these other entities? Again, very important. Partially, it helps to increase the community's trust in us as somebody who can help them in whatever way is needed. Again, it can help us to determine who to trust our clients with, who is best in the community to serve their needs. We can also serve in an advocacy role when we are working with educators and churches to help improve, help reduce the stigma, first of all, like we mentioned earlier, and to help bring in more resources that the community may need to address social determinants of health or mental health specifically. Those connections are vital to our ability to function within rural communities. So would you suggest that in rural communities, practitioners are much more embedded within the community than in larger metropolitan areas? In my opinion, they should be. We have run into some issues with that because of our ethical guidelines on dual relationships and kind of separating yourself. I think there's some studies that have shown that a lot of rural practitioners tend to live in like the community right next to where they're practicing. So they aren't dealing with those ethical dilemmas. But in my opinion, in the future, we should be more embedded and willing to grapple with those dilemmas as they come up. Yeah, that makes a whole lot of sense. Esther, maybe I'll ask you this question. I think someone touched on it earlier. And given the access and capacity issues that the region has in general, I know you. someone talked about primary care separated from behavioral therapy in rural areas. Because of the access issues, how important is it to combine those in, in a rural setting? Very important. Um, no, it's, I would say it's not just important, but like from what we're learning in a lot of different classes is that it provides honestly a really good opportunity on multiple levels. So on one level, you, we know at least from what we've learned in the class we're taking with Dr. Curtin currently that rural residents are usually more comfortable with sharing things with their primary care and just because we're there doesn't mean they're going to want to come talk to us as because we're known as like a mental health professional. So if we're already embedded and we are known to that primary care, they can do what's called a warm handoff where they don't feel like they have to go out of their competency outside of what they've typically learned in medical school. And a lot of times that looks like giving like an antidepressant for depressive symptoms, because that is the biggest tool that they have is that prescribing power. And some doctors, you know, really don't know what to do when their clients or patients come to them with mental health concerns, again, other than medication. So when we're embedded, that gives us an opportunity for one to relieve some of the doctors or PCP stress. A lot of people show up to emergency rooms as well with mental health concerns and even sometimes severe mental health concerns. And having us embedded means that that offsets some of the stress of the PCP and other healthcare providers that are really trained for the physical. While we can all work together in an integrated way that again addresses the whole person because I think it was shot or somebody in the very beginning 
people like to think that the mind and what we think about, how we feel does not interact with our physical well-being. And we know that rural patients tend to report more physical symptoms, even in regards to mental health, like fatigue with depression or chronic pain with depression. But they are just in a sense, truly very integrated and they play off of one another. So basically having us within that primary care is important because it helps everybody out and offsets a lot of the stress that's on the healthcare system. Maybe I'll follow up with you on this question as well. You, you mentioned depression and it's, it's much higher in Appalachia than other regions as, as studies have shown, but we also understand that mental health, that, that term gets thrown out a, a lot. Mental health, what is it? Mental health, mental health. And, and even in regards to how you diagnose mental health. But in regards to depression, I say we, but maybe I read this, often understand that it's related to or driven by a term or a phrase that I heard, normal syndromes of distress, which could be, I mentioned earlier, demoralization, any type of grief. You know, we just saw the floods in eastern Kentucky, loss of dignity. I mentioned unemployment earlier. You know, the list goes on. But rather than a mental illness, it could be deemed as this normal syndromes of distress. Are they different? Are, are there different ways to treat these as opposed to mental illness? And how do you do, differentiate the two? I think that does actually go back to one of the questions that we've been talking about earlier is that, you know, as our role, like we shouldn't be always so focused on what we call mental illnesses or symptoms of depression, but we're like when you see a patient for the first time, you're checking all of the boxes. Do they have availability to food? Like the simple things that you would hope everybody has access to, but you really just can't assume. One of the biggest things we've been taught to look at is just like even sleep. So there are the, these signs of distress that can be seen that you could just label it as depression, but you could also, you know, if you dig a little deeper, it makes a lot of sense why someone would be really stressed out, feeling down, not wanting to do anything that they used to find pleasure in. It is something that we have to really take into account, especially with like disaster relief. It's not necessarily something that you immediately want to say, hey, you need to go to therapy because you just experienced this awful event. It's more like, can I give you any of the basic needs? Like, you lost your house, can I point you in the direction of resources? And I think like it's really important for us to think of ourselves as being able to, again, go into that more community role, advocacy role, and even policy role so that we're, again, focusing on the whole person. And of course, if someone doesn't have a stable home environment, I would be depressed too. So it's just kind of like thinking outside of our DSM or our diagnostic labels for sure is, is going to probably be the best way to go. If I don't know if Dr. Curtin wants to add anything to that. No, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I think sometimes we are looking at kind of normal reactions to abnormal circumstances. And if we don't address those circumstances, it doesn't matter if a certain label fits, that individualized kind of pathologizing approach isn't going to be very helpful if there are circumstances that help explain this. Symptoms of depression make sense. You know, sometimes we experience those symptoms because we have a lack of other resources and we need to kind of conserve the resources that we have to kind of manage ourselves. You know, I think we always look at the impact on a person's functioning. 
and are they able to kind of keep moving forward towards the things that they need to take care of? And then can we be a part of that solution? Um, so I couldn't agree more that there are some times that the label depression doesn't really capture what's going on. Those are all excellent points. I think it's important for not only the region, but all of America to get to the point of, you know, we have a foot ache, we go to a podiatrist. If we have some of these symptoms, it doesn't mean we've had, we've heard on past episode, it doesn't mean that, you know, you have significant problems, but, you know, you can go seek therapy, you can go to a psychologist and just like going to a podiatrist, you know, if you have these symptoms of depression, there shouldn't be a stigma around it. Yeah, I think with um, what we label as mental illnesses, sometimes we make the mistake of thinking that that is who the person is, as opposed to something that they're experiencing or suffering from. And it, it comes out in our language even sometimes. So I think we're making some progress there, but progress is slow. Yeah. Suicide in Appalachia is kind of a big issue. Suicide rate, is, it's 17% higher in Appalachia and even higher among youth in Appalachia. And we live in a region where gun rights are extremely important and, and hunting is, is, is really a way of life in Appalachia. In, in regards to that, what are some of the resources to combat suicide? Maybe Shayla, I'll ask you, what are some of those resources, but also just in regards to the culture again, uh, how important is gun safety and not really trying to take away guns. Yeah, historically, we haven't painted ourselves in a good light on gun issues, but there have been some moves lately to move away from, you know, let's just take away everybody's guns, let's lock them all up. Research is more suggesting more that it's putting time and distance between a person and the most lethal mean of suicide, which tends to be firearms. And that can be done in several ways. Sometimes it's just keeping it in a locked safe and the person who is at risk of suicide. They don't have access to the keys. They don't have access to the uh, the code. And that might include having somebody outside the home hold on to the keys or changing that code every other week just to make sure they don't know what it is. It's always been an option for firearms to be temporarily and voluntarily removed from the home. And that historically has been through like friends or family members. Somebody will have a friend hold on to their firearms for a little while just to just till the point that they're feeling safe. And here in North Carolina, the federal firearm, federally licensed firearm dealers have a few of them are, they have the capability to temporarily store firearms for somebody if they're feeling like they're at risk of suicide or even if they're just being deployed for the military, if they have young children coming to the home. Those are other options other states can explore as well. It would depend on the local firearm laws regarding temporary transfers. Not every state has them. I know North, Car North Carolina has a law about temporary transfers, but it's not very robust. And people are more protected under like Good Samaritan laws regarding those issues. If like if they were to return the firearm to that person who was at risk and they do later on go on to die by suicide, Good Samaritan laws may better protect them. When I looked it up in North, uh, Kentucky does not have any laws regarding temporary transfers. So that's a role that we've been trying to fill in is like um, advocating for more protections around temporary transfers to facilitate the option of temporarily and voluntarily removing firearms from the home if needed. But in regards to resources for suicide prevention, there are sometimes some like mobile crisis units in local areas here we have Daymark. They serve a lot of the counties here, Watauga, Ash, Allegheny, I think Avery as well. And they will 
respond if somebody calls about currently being at risk for suicide and they can facilitate treatment through either hospitalization if it's needed or just getting them connected with the therapist. Is that something that your training touches on, suicide prevention? Is that part of your training? Is that a, is that a major aspect in regards to what, you, what you're taught? Yeah, it is. Two of our faculty members, now just one, one of them moved away. Both of them were researching and still currently research suicide and suicide prevention. Dr. John Paul Jameson, he actually has created a training regarding counseling on access to lethal means that's helping secure, helping people who have, who are at risk for suicide, helping their family members and friends make them more safe in their environment, whether that's locking away medication or increasing security around firearms so that the person at risk can't get it. Those trainings are currently being used for schools. I think medical providers, EMTs are currently being trained on it right now. And one of our other faculty members who's recently left, Dr. Kurt Michael, he is currently working with the Jed Foundation, which is a, I believe they're a suicide prevention foundation out in Colorado. We've been lucky that this topic, which has historically also been ignored within psychology and among therapists, because we tend to be uncomfortable about it. We've been lucky here that it's been a pretty big focus in our training. That's great. I wanted to maybe shift gears because several of you have touched on the cost of therapy, of of, health, of mental health care. Over 11% of adults with mental illness are uninsured. And a lot of insurance providers won't even accept some of the treatments for mental illness. So, Kim, maybe I'll ask you, how much of a barrier to treatment is this in rural areas? Well, I think when we look at individuals living in rural areas and we look at the percentages of individuals who are underinsured, we know that there are higher rates of individuals living in rural areas who are underinsured. And I think we... We've spoke to this several times, you know, thinking about those social determinants of health, thinking about barriers and disparities that we often see in rural areas, being that number one, like being able to purchase health insurance, you know, seeking those services when you are uninsured and, you know, seeing a physician can be or a psychologist can be extremely expensive if you don't have that insurance. But as I think it was Esther who said previously, you know, seeing individuals in emergency settings, right, whenever their mental health has really declined. So it, it is a it is a huge barrier. And what we often see is those individuals who are uninsured, you know, continue to go on and don't treat, you know, their mental health concerns. And then it leads to much more severe psychopathology in emergency rooms. And when we look at suicide rates in rural areas, we see that they tend to be much higher and especially here in Appalachia. So it's definitely a barrier. and, And I think it's just kind of something that trickles down and we see some really detrimental effects of being uninsured and those individuals just not having the resources to be able to financially afford insurance. That's a great answer. I wanted to not necessarily end on this question, but ask all of you, even on this podcast, we talk about it a lot, but the first thing that people ask us when they, when they want to talk about Appalachia, especially outsiders, they want to talk about the challenges. Um, that's the first thing that comes up. It's always the challenges. And Neil and I, as part of this podcast, we really just try to focus on the opportunities because being from here, that's that's what we think about first, the opportunities. And so I wanted to ask you just in regards to your field of work, your field of study, a lot of this episode has been, we've been talking about the issues and the challenges with mental health. But I, I wanted to ask all of you, what are some of the strengths in your field of work and, and how can we focus on the potential opportunities? I know I was really, when I first came here, I was really 
and even in my in the past I mentioned how I go to how I saw Maggie Valley as kind of the ideal vacation spot now that I'm older and I continue to go back I continue to be impressed with the passions and the the art the culture of these people and what they do and what they spend their time doing I used to think it was kind of like in my like childhood view I lived in a suburban area where there was always someone to play with across the street and so it was really hard for me to imagine how people would spend their time when they're in these spread out areas with like you know 30 minutes to the grocery store or whatnot it was really hard for me to imagine now that I'm older as I was saying I really do see how much how cool it is and how special it is that you have like I remember the first time I heard like bluegrass music I thought it was just like incredible like seeing like even craft fairs where people have made these huge like creations out of yarn or like patchwork generally just you feel the sense of community even though I was only there for summers I grew up also going to see clogging shows which I found fascinating and you know like the all the dis- different dances and like even like some of the folklore and I just think all of those like artistic expressions like really seem to be a huge strength to me at least and like people find really creative ways to spend their time whereas like like I said as a kid I, I didn't understand it but now I come to really appreciate it. That's great. Esther, I'll, I'll tell you, Appalachia has always been cool. It's just people, people are just now figuring it out. And I clogged in fourth grade as an aside. I always wanted to do it. It's <laughs> so cool. Uh, Kelly. I agree with Esther. I really enjoyed as a, someone who's not from here, uh, getting to meet everyone. I think the sense of community is such a huge strength and something that's carried uh, individuals from Appalachia through any kind of community tragedy or anything tra- challenging is the ability for the community to get behind one another and rally and just support the needs of one another. So that's one thing I've noticed in my time up here is just how um, unique and strong all the people are. It's great. Shrada? Kelly kind of stole my answer because I was going to go with the sense of community. One of the things, and that's going back to like my previous comment was like, that reminds me of like India and the culture of like collectivistic culture and being so close to your community members, which is very similar to what I grew up in. And we talked that talked about that a lot in class is that you know, and Dr. Curtin just said it also, like, if you forget what you're eating, just ask, like, your neighbor. So that aspect of it, that you can just walk around and, like, know people, um, it's definitely a really big strength because that can be very protective and helpful when someone is struggling with specific, like, mental health, physical health, whatever it be. Great, Kim? Everybody had the answers, too, that I was thinking as well. I think resiliency. So, again, and having that community aspect and supporting one another. I think we see a lot here in the community, you know, religiosity plays a big factor and that community and interaction of one another and how supportive um, church members are for one another. Um, We know that having social support and having that community-based support is a protective factor. And I think that's a big strength that we see here in Appalachia and that we see in a lot of rural communities. So I think that's a really huge strength that we have here. Shayla? It's just going to be a little bit different. Psychology, we've always made a place for ourselves. It was never really handed to us. We will embed ourselves wherever we see fit, where it needed. And I think here in Appalachia and other rural areas, if we do it right, we can find ourselves these places where help is needed the most. And if we're doing our job well, the community will come and 
support us through it. That's what's happened with the ASK centers, the assessment counseling, assessment support and counseling centers. We pushed ourselves into the school system here. And now everybody's, not everybody, but school system, the teachers, the parents, the kids are all very happy that we're here and they support us through whatever we need. We recently left Watauga County, but the county, we're no longer involved with Watauga County, but the county itself has taken over the ASK center. So we created those opportunities and the community has taken them on their all as their own. They've come together to continue this mission that we started, I suppose. Maggie? Yeah, I think a big piece is resiliency. And despite a lot of the stereotypes, openness to (laughs) different ideas and different perspectives. And so given that one of the biggest ways to overcome stigma as a psychologist in a community is to integrate yourself and become more familiar and interact directly with people and just really get to know the people, the community, how they interact. I feel like it's really nice that in a rural area, communities are so strong and so welcoming and so nice and always waving at each other on the street and waving with the one finger while you're driving. And, you know, it's all a very, it's a close-knit community. So it makes it easy for us to hopefully integrate ourselves and then start getting that trust. That's great. Dr. Curtin, do you want to answer this question as well? Uh, I really appreciate the question, I guess, um, because I think so many of kind of the stereotypes of Appalachia that you referred to before are deficit-based, and there are so many strengths, and unless we identify and kind of work within those strengths. So I guess one reaction I have to the question is that sometimes I think psychologists and other um, professionals can kind of have the idea of, I'm going to go in and fix something that's broken, (laughs) and no one wants to be fixed. You know, so I like the idea of working with the community and um, seeing where you fit into the community and what the community is already doing and then how we what role we might play that could be helpful. So I guess if I think about a strength, I think it kind of builds on what everyone else has said. I've never seen communities mobilize as quickly as I've seen communities locally do that, you know, and it probably does have something to do with the history of the region. You know, you can't wait for anyone to get here because it takes a long time to get here. We've got mountainous roads that are difficult to get through. And so you've got to mobilize quickly with what you've got in front of you. And then you know, welcome anybody else when they get there, but we're going to take care of it now. And so that self-sufficiency and independence can be looked at as a negative thing, but it's also really a strength. Yeah. And I I think we've seen that magnified with the flooding in Eastern Kentucky. And I I really appreciate all those answers. I think they were perfect uh, in regards to the question. I wanted to end with a couple of questions that we ask everyone on the show and and we, we can go around really quickly for these answers, but What's the first thing that comes to mind? And Shayla, I'll ask you first. What's the first thing that comes to mind when I say the word Appalachia? This is going to sound stupid, but apples. No, Appalachia. Yeah. Kim? Home. Shrada. Mountains. Kelly? Mountains. <laughs> Maggie? Home. Esther? Fiddle. <laughs> and Dr. Curtin? I think community. All great answers. Obviously, there's no wrong answer, but it's always interesting to hear people's perspective. You know, we've mentioned the stereotypes. And a lot of times when you ask people outside the region, the first thing that comes to mind is poverty or or things like that. But um, it's always good to hear different perspectives in regards to that question. And and we appreciate it. One of the last questions that I have, I want to ask you all because we ask everyone, but where do you call home? I'll, I'll preface that by saying that place is really important to Appalachia. 
uh, we ground this podcast on place and perspective. So I wanted to ask you all just where do you call home? What makes it home for you? What makes it unique? Maggie. So I live in a really old farmhouse that my grandpa's dad and his dad built forever ago. It's um, there's a corn cob in the hardwood floor to fill in a knot in the wood that was used to build it. And it's got a lot of character and it's really old, um, but it sits on land. It was a farm at one point. Now it's not, but it's still got all the land. Um, and so I've lived in that house since I was born. So that is my my happy place. <laughs> Nice. Dr. Curtin, I'll ask you since I've asked you last every time. You can go. Sure. I consider the high country of North Carolina to be my home. So I live in Watauga County now, but I've lived in Ashe County. I've lived in Avery County since I've been up here. What makes it home? I don't know. When I drive up from, you know, flying someplace and I see my mountains as I'm coming up, it feels like home. I've raised two kids here. Nice. I might have a little long answer. So for me, because Mumbai is so big, my home was like my society, which like kind of consists of like 20 some high rise buildings, but it was very community based. And I've talked about this a lot, but everyone in our society knows each other. So if you're walking down, everyone says hi to each other. And then we used to always play games all the time. So growing up, like summers were like you start at 10 a.m., you go down and you're playing cricket, soccer, like all kinds of games with everyone. So it's like that is very unique because we all knew each other. And there was like 30,000 some people in my society alone. So that is home to me because we all like we're so close to each other and whenever someone needed someone we were able to be there for each other and when you go back you, you feel like you're home definitely my parents moved sadly recently so it's going to be weird going back now to a different place that I didn't grow up in yeah Kelly I think right now uh, home is uh, also up here for me I think it's because I kind of like moved out and uh, made my own life up here. So I kind of have a similar experience to Dr. Curtin, like when I'm coming back from where I used to live and like see mountains, like I'm getting close to home. Nice. Kim. You're going to have to steal the exact same answer. So I grew up in like Todd kind of Creston area and now live in Sugar Grove and just recently, like yesterday drove across the mountain, across meat camp and like looking at all the mountains and the trees and just the window rolled down and smelling the fresh air and like the fresh cut grass that just reminds me of home. So just the view, the scenery and just being here. Shayla. Uh, for me, my home, probably my grandparents place in Ledger, Connecticut. We moved a lot as kids. So my grandparents place was the one stable home we had. And it was where we'd always go for holidays like Thanksgiving and our birthdays in the summer and Christmas. So I would say that would be my, my home. Esther. I've already mentioned it, but the mountain house that my grandparents built in Maggie Valley is as long as my family's there. That's that's my home. Um, I could say that anywhere with my family, but honestly, going back to Ohio, like in that Cleveland area, like I never really felt any sense of community there. And that's no fault of anybody's. I just didn't wasn't feeling it. I don't know. But um, I would definitely call that mountain house home with my family there. There's just like a sense of relaxation that I don't even think relax, like being relaxed is even like a word that really covers it. But like being with family in that house, um, there is a smell to it. Um, I have we have a beautiful view of the Smokies and there's there's really nothing like it. That's great. Neil and I say all the time on this show, for us, it, it, it's always the mountains. We feel like there's a little bit of, ma- for us anyway, we feel like there's a little bit of magic in the mountains. 
anytime we get back to them, um, we always we always get that sense of relief and that sense of home. So uh, I mentioned that was my last question, but I did have one last question for everyone. Just quickly, you know, we like to highlight Appalachia as much as we can. We call it gassing, gassing up Appalachia. That's what we try to do on this podcast, gas it up as much as possible. So I wanted to, I asked someone earlier if they partook in burning couches after, after the game in Boone a couple of weeks ago. They said no, but I know that Boone is a special place. It's a special place for not only the region, but Appalachia in general. So I wanted to ask each one of you just a quick answer. What's your favorite thing to do in Boone? What would you recommend for someone coming to Boone? Kelly. One of my favorite things to do is drive on the parkway. There's a lot of really beautiful overlooks. It's um, pretty much nice except in the winter. Um, so just nice to hang out there and relax. Cool. It's a perfect time right now. Changing of the leaves are pretty close. Shrada. I think I was going to say parkway, but another thing would be I love like zip lining. There's a really cool place called Hawk's Nest and it's beautiful because you can see all the mountains while you're zip lining. Nice. Kim. I was going to say the parkway as well and the trails, but I mean, you've got to come skiing. So or snowboarding. What's the, what's the best ski spot? Oh, I don't even want to say, I'm not sure. They're all great. I can't <laughs> pick. I can't pick. No bias. No bias. Yeah. No bias. <laughs> Shayla. I've only been there a couple of times, but I'm going to say Watauga Lake. Maggie. There's a place on, you get to it. It's sort of towards Blowing Rock in Linville area. It's on the same road as the Helmsier club but it's called the Hebron Rock Colony and it's just a trail to the river and then you come out and it's just this the entire spans of river is just these gigantic boulders and rocks and it's like waterfalls it is so pretty it's gorgeous so that's my favorite place to go nice Esther so alvars are very nature related mine is also so there's a park that's kind of within the town of Boone called the Greenway and that is my um I'm a runner and that is my running spot that is my spot of peace in between like class and homework because that's the beauty of being a grad student you're working and then you go home and you do homework um so to break that up Riding on the Greenway is, is the best way to maintain my sanity. No favorite coffee shops in, in this group with, with all the homework that you do? There's so many of them. We I feel like we've run out of space. Like, of course, we've got Starbucks, but we've got like four or five like local local nice. ones as well. Dr. Curtin. I'm an avid uh, cyclist, so I just love to get on my bike because it allows me to kind of see the scenery and I, I'm pretty slow on my bike, so... <laughs> <laughs> so I have lots of time to look around <laughs> nice. um, so the parkway as well as a lot of other places I like to you go on I'm not a daredevil so I don't go on the trafficy road to so the kind of quiet roads and that's what I love that's great I, I appreciate everyone's answer and appreciate you taking the time to answer that question but I wanted to thank all of you for being on this episode I feel like this was a really uh, and, and I appreciate you speaking openly to the issues uh, in regards to stigma, in regards to mental health. But also, I feel like this was a pretty powerful episode, not necessarily for the topics that we discussed, although they're powerful in and of themselves, but powerful because of the people that are on this episode. I mean, you all are going to be change agents, not throughout the country, but change agents throughout Appalachia. And I appreciate that. And I thank you for all that you're doing in regards to your education, but all that you will do when you do become 
doctors. And so thank you for your time today, but more importantly, thank you for all, all that you do. Thanks for having us, Will. We really appreciate it. And thanks yeah, thank for the you. podcast. We've really enjoyed listening to it. What's your favorite episode? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> oh, I have a favorite episode. <laughs> oh, perfect. We'll, we'll add this in. Cool, cool. Okay, the, my favorite episode is you interviewed like a researcher from the University of Kentucky, I think Dr. Young. Mm-hmm. And then my tied favorite episode with that is you interviewed someone, a female who is Indian and grew up in, and is a writer and grew up and I don't I forget her name. I feel really bad, but she was awesome. And I just, I love the, the vibe that you and your brother bring to the podcast. So I've, I've almost listened to every episode at this point. Oh, wow. I'll just thank you for introducing me to Corduroy Brown. I really enjoyed listening to that. I haven't listened to all the episodes, so I'm not ready to rank order them. <laughs> I was going to say the chicken conversation at the beginning of the Corduroy <laughs> That episode had me just, I was, that was fantastic. That was really nice. Great. I would say which chicken uh, conversation because we've had several chicken conversations. On. I love listening to those conversations and I'm just going to do a little sidetrack but I grew up in a small area of Florida and we were known for the chicken plucking contests so every time you mention this and now it, it would it's banned now because it's totally <laughs> unethical <laughs> but there would be like teams of people in the community that we they would cut the heads off of the chickens, let them run around. Kids would be traumatized watching. <laughs> to a and perfect then, field. And they died. That's why, that's why you're talking. Like teams of bankers seeing who could pluck the feathers out the fastest. Oh, wow. <laughs> so you make me think of that part of my life whenever you and Neil are talking about that. That, that, I don't know if that's good to know or, or not. <laughs> oh, oh, Spring Hill, Florida. <laughs> I was just going to say, that's like, I mean, thinking about living here. I mean, I grew up with my grandmother, like doing that exact same thing, being farmers, my grandparents were. So I didn't eat chicken for like most of my life until I became an adult because we had to help with the entire process. But I think that that's probably pretty common in like rural areas, like especially with farmers, even not in rural areas. But yeah, you made me think of just my own past. Thanks again. Uh, Like I said, I appreciate it. Thank you so much. This was so fun. Yeah, yeah. This is fun. thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you guys. And and again, seriously, thanks for what you do. We appreciate it. Well, I like my love done country style. And this little girl would walk a country mile to find her a good old slow talk a country boy. I said a country boy. Uh Will, great job again by the uh, students that are at App State. Um, I guess we should have figured that App State students would be uh top notch. So I really appreciate their time and sharing with us tonight. Yeah, I'm glad that we broke it up into two parts. I, I think it, sh- it, it was a good juxtaposition or a good segue from the first part to the second part. The second part, you know, the first part, obviously, we focused a lot on the issues. But in the second part, the students got to talk about the strengths of the region and the strengths in regards to their program. And I just thought it was a good discussion on their part, a good way to allow them to talk about the opportunities and just the reasons why they're at App State and why they do what they do. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, Will. Couldn't agree more. And, you know, to that to that point, you know, speaking of mental health, there are a lot of uh, there are a lot of resources out there that folks can reach out to if if they're going through some things. And lots of times 
those people don't really know. So I thought we'd just take a minute and uh, maybe you can read off or uh, provide some of those resources that are there for people that are going through some things. And, you know, maybe we can just help one person who might be listening to this episode that needs a resource to reach out to. So if you don't mind, if you could mention some of those. Sure. I know we've, we've mentioned a couple resources in the past episodes, in the past episodes in regards to mental health, and we've posted them in the show notes. These are some more resources. I think we can do this instead of the app biz or as the app biz of the week to just list some of these resources. We'll put these in the show notes as well. They are the 988 Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. Has a number, it's 24-7 access, counselors who can help people experiencing mental health-related distress. There's also the Veterans Crisis Line. You can text 838-255 or dial 988, then press 1 to also get crisis support in that regard. There's also the Trevor Project. Text START to 678 or call 866-488-7386 all day, any day to reach trained counselors who can support people under 25 who are in crisis, feeling suicidal, or in need of a safe and judgment-free place to talk. So that's the Trevor Project. We'll post that in the show notes as well. There's a couple more that I wanted to identify. The National Sexual Assault Hotline. You call 800-656-HOPE, that's 4673, that's confidential support services for survivors, regardless of where they are in their recovery. And the last one is the National Eating Disorders Helpline. Call or text 800-931-2237 for support. So those are just a few resources that you can reach out to, you know, if you're suffering or if you just need to talk, we'll post those in the show notes and have those available uh, anytime. Great. Appreciate you mentioning those, Will. And again, another great episode. Really appreciate the the students and Dr. Curtin as well for joining us. And hopefully uh, we can provide some much needed resources for for people all throughout the region and uh, all over all over that that are listening. Definitely. And I think as an aside, considering what the students (laughs) talked about at the end, I think I would be remiss to not ask you about your chickens. So how are they doing? Well, it's an update. Give me a chicken update. It's turning to fall and my chickens have laid down for the year. What what do you mean by laid down? (laughs) I don't think that you didn't enter into the festival that Dr. Curtin was talking about, right? You mean laid down by <laughs> went to sleep? <laughs> no, no. I mean, they're just not producing and uh, I'm really discouraged right now. I don't know how to get them to produce through the winter months. And uh, I think it might be a long, cold winter for, for me and for them. Uh, it'd be a lack of protein in the house. And, uh, <laughs> We really, we really need to figure some things out on that front. You have to rely on peanut butter over the winter. I guess so. If you guys are listening and you can send some peanut butter my way, I'm going to need it. I might send some eggs your way. That'd be good too, because I'm definitely not getting any on my own here. All right. I appreciate the update. Sad day. I raised my head and set myself. Yes, it is. Well... In I the eye of a storm, in the belly update, of a well. We end it like we usually do. Till next time. My spirit stood Peace. on solid ground. 
I'll be at peace when they lay me down When I was a child I cried Until my needs were satisfied My needs have grown up pound for pound I'll be at peace when they lay me down When they lay me down someday My soul will rise and fly away This old world will turn around I'll be at peace when they lay me down This life isn't fair it seems It's filled with tears and broken dreams There are no tears where I'm I'll be at peace when they lay me down I was a child I could